This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief at the New Books Network, and just a warning about the following interview. We had a bad phone connection, and so the audio is a little bit rough. But in any case, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers of African American life and culture discuss their new books. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and today I'm happy to speak with Aaron D. Chapman, professor in the History Department at George Washington University. Dr. Chapman is the author of new book, Prove It On Me, New Negroes, Sex and Popular Culture in the 1920s, published by Oxford University Press in 2012. In our conversation, the professor discusses new Negroes, like Ethel Waters, Oscar Michaud, Nella Larson, or Madame C.J. Walker, just to name a few, and how they used popular culture to achieve their own goals for racial advancement and or to hone their own ideas of self-determination. If you want to learn more about New Negroes and how they used prominent ideas about gender, race, and sexuality to sell and consume various ideas and products, Aaron D. Chapman's new book is for you. Listen in so you too can enjoy our conversation. Good morning. Good morning, listeners. I'm Sherry Johnson, and we're speaking this morning with Dr. Aaron D. Chapman. Welcome, Aaron. How are you this morning? I'm well. Thank you very much. And hello to the listeners. Good, good, good. This morning, we're going to be talking a bit about. Um, Dr. Chapman's Prove It On Me, New Negroes, Sex, and Popular Culture in the 1920s. Before we begin, though, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you were born and raised, and how you became interested in your subject. Okay, well, I was uh, brought up in Dallas, Texas, um, and then I went to California for undergrad, um, and it was there that I began to um, take an interest in African-American gender history. Um, and I wrote an undergraduate honors thesis um, with Claiborne Carson on uh, the, the sort of battle and dispute between black power and black feminism in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and I, I was attempting to do cultural history. Um, I didn't really understand what it was as an undergraduate. And uh, so that was more of an intellectual history. I used um, Michelle Wallace's uh, polemic um, in conjunction or juxtaposition to um, uh, Eldridge Cleaver's uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> equally 
academic um, publications. Um, so Soul, Soul on Ice versus Black Magic and the Superman. And so I went to graduate school with African-American gender politics on my mind, um, the ideas of you know, what does it mean to be a black woman or to be a black man, um, and what, in terms of gender, is the African-American struggle trying to accomplish. Um, and in graduate school, um, I worked with Hazel Harvey, uh, took the introductory class um, with her in our African-American studies uh, PhD program, and um, came to be interested in the idea of the blues woman. And I was, I was really captivated by another um, seminar taught by uh, Jonathan Holloway, with whom I also worked, um, in which a fellow student brought in advertisements um, that have since ended up in Prove It On Me. Um, and uh, they were advertisements for race records that really uh, did not fit the sort of uh, Angela Davis, Hazel Harvey analysis of the blues as sung by blues women as feminist or photo-feminist or something. Because they were cartoonish and they were uh, they contained minstrel images and they didn't seem to be about black self-determination in any form, let alone um, And so I was like, well, there's, there's a contradiction here and I, I want to dig more into that and look at that. Um, so that evolved from seminar papers and, and uh, coursework research papers into uh, a dissertation that um, that endeavored to sort of to, to try to balance those impulses um, in the new Negro era. Um, what is going on in terms of African American racial advancement and its gender politics? What is happening in terms of Black women's efforts at self determination in performance and in the context of the arts um, and um, representations of the period? Okay, good. So you mentioned Hazel Harvey. I wonder if there and a few other names. I'm wondering if you could say who your mentors were. Yeah, I guess I don't know. Maybe whether you had any struggles with deciding to um, examine gender politics um, for your as your passion. Um. Well, first, the, the mentor side of the question. I, I worked with Matt Jacobson, um, Hazel Harvey, and John. Mm-hmm. Um, other mentors have been Estelle Friedman and Rayborn Carson. Um, Eula Taylor has been wonderful to me. So have um, Tara Hunter. Um, and um, I've recently met Jennifer Morgan, she's been really great. So, um, sort of a, a broad spectrum, but certainly the main people that I worked with in um, dissertation were those three, Matt Jacobson. Um, in terms of studying African-American gender politics, um, it, and that's a difficult question. I think it's it, it can be a difficult thing, although um, we're certainly studying it from a feminist perspective, although I think that black feminism is on the rise again in certain forms. So um, I certainly contribute to that and contribute from that. Um, and sort of the long history of uh, Black women's scholarship um, has certainly been um, foundational. Yeah, good stuff. It's that question is one way in which I could see uh, ambivalences that some of the new Negro women 
experienced be you know translating to contemporary moments. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I asked that question because um, I think it's still I think those ambivalences are trying to find a, a space in which you can speak about um, uh, oppression without necessarily being nailed or named that, um, you know, emasculating female um, still exists, still really, it's still a really um, interesting um, and powerful um, moniker to have that kind of, that title. So, all right, so let's, we'll get into that, I think, a little bit more when we talk a bit about the women who expressed or found ways to express um, um, dissatisfaction or unhappiness with the, the um, ideology, Negro uh, progressive uh, ideology. Okay. All right, so there are a couple of things that drew me to your text, Erin. Uh, first of all, the cover, the picture of these women, uh, woman, um, Ethel Waters, and then your focus on popular culture and what it reveals about the new Negro and sex politics. Um, but before we get into the heart of our discussion, I'd like to give you an opportunity to define some of the key terms that you use for your analysis. Um, all right, in your introduction, you apply and actually note that the great migration economics and technology and interracial discourse on motherhood at the turn of the 20th century helped to form sex race marketplace, the, the sex race marketplace. Two important terms there race motherhood and sex race marketplace. Can you share with our listeners how you define these terms? Okay, um, these are discourses, um, and uh, in using that term discourse, I'm, I'm drawing upon um, the, the theories of principally Michel Foucault, um, but sort of leaving the sort of high theory aside, um, mm-hmm. you know, a discourse is a, is a, is a set of meanings um, and ideas um, that are dominant, hegemonic um, in, in society. Um, so. When I say that the sex race marketplace is a discourse, I mean that um, there is a, a an actual market, right? It's selling race records, um, tickets to performances, um, subscriptions to um, Opportunity Magazine or the Chicago Defender or the Crisis, um, selling memberships to organizations like um, the NAACP or the National Urban League, um, also selling. So, um, ideas along with that, right? Mm-hmm. So, a subscription to the crisis, um, you're also buying into the idea of a certain notion of African American advancement. Um, you can be white or black or a member, member of another race buying that subscription. Buying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're buying a race record, um, uh, you're also sort of buying into. Um, or wanting to participate in um, the performance and the idea of the blues women or the idea of the performer that's recorded there. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, a, it's a set of meanings, a set of ideas, a set of uh, notions and um, representations mm-hmm. to do with sexuality and race. Mm-hmm. And race motherhood? Race motherhood is another discourse. I'm, I see that as principally working within or among African Americans. Um, 
So while the sex race marketplace was huge and sort of um, overarching in terms of um, the idea of slumming or, or the primitivist ideas about African Americans as, as closer to, to the earth, among African Americans themselves, um, as they dealt with that, um, those notions about themselves were, and were very aware of them, they were also debating their own gender politics um, developed. Um, what I see as a, as a sort of rising, man-centered um, aspiration toward patriarchy um, that would have black women be supportive of that. And so um, the idea was that the race would advance um, through men's advancement, men's economically, men's advancement um, in terms of, of being able to be in charge of organizations, of their homes, of their families. Um, being able to be recognized as men by the larger society, and that black women would be supportive of that, um, not necessarily seeking their own self-determination or advancement, but seeking to promote and help black men along the theirs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The sisters or the wives or the mothers mm-hmm. Right, right. All right, important to that concept is the idea that I found in your text is the idea that it's not necessarily giving birth, although it can be that, right? It, it is also just taking care of, so even if you are a single female, that you are giving over yourself individually, yourself, your own desires and your own individuality in order to contribute to the race. And in yes. this way, it's mothering as well, right? Mothering race in the sense of, say, you're a teacher or a nurse. That's right. Even if you work as a secretary in a business, you know, mm-hmm. um, contributing to African-American entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you're to be subservient and supportive of your boss as not only your boss, but your patriarch, right? Yes, yes. That's right. That's right. Okay, good. And just so that we remember that we're speaking of a specific moment in U.S. history, right, can you say a little bit about the New Negro movement or who was the New Negro? Okay, um, yes, the New Negro era um, is principally formed um, by the Great Migration. So African Americans are moving um, in much larger numbers than before. I mean, they had always been on the move since emancipation, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. But they were um, on the move in much more significant numbers, um, moving from rural areas or small towns across the South um, into the large cities of the South, um, increasingly of of the cities of the North and the Midwest. Um, So moving to places like Memphis, maybe moving from Memphis to Chicago or Memphis to New York or, um, you know, a migration like that. Um, And as they moved, um, they're coming together um, in these large urban enclaves. Um, mm-hmm. So creating the beginnings of what become ghettos. Um, but they're not necessarily ghettos yet, mm-hmm. in terms of being run down in slums and neglected by city services. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're certainly taking over large sections of cities and sort of newly um, visible. Like, wow, where are all these black people living here? Mm-hmm. So was Italian, Jewish, whatever, right? and now it's black and what happened. Right, right. Um, so they're conspicuous, um, and they're taking advantage of that conspicuousness. Um, they're creating mass movements, 
um, to marching in the streets like the 1917 silent parade um, that was an anti-lynching protest. They're also um, a new market, right? They are buying and consuming. That's right. Um, they can become a consumer market to recording companies, for example, on um, this new um, product, right? They sell race records to this group of consumers, but also to um, white people who are interested in these conspicuous new urban black populations. What are they doing over there? They're having fun, what's the nightlife, you know, um, what are the dances outfit just fashion, right? And so they are um, creating a sort of a movement out of that new modern urbanity. And that's what's new about them, right? Um, and in contradistinction to their thought, their parents' generation, um, saying, you know, you know, in the way that, that all new sort of up-and-coming 20-somethings and 30-somethings look at their parents and say, I, I don't like the way you did that, right? Like, thanks to you for supporting and raising me, but we're going to do it a little differently. Right, right. That's the old way. Right. You know, I'm new. Some, I'm modern. As subservient in some ways as, mm-hmm. as having submitted too much um, to... Um, to white paternalism or even to white supremacy, um, and they're saying we're going to be a lot more assertive. Um, not necessarily militant in the way that we think of with the Black Power movement, um, but certainly um, much more um, um, unwilling to accommodate themselves. Sure, sure. I mean, I think this part of the uh, century. We really do begin to see protests, protests, whether it's in literature, whether it's in film, but you know, that um, there are individuals, I think that's a part of the new Negro um, era, part of the definition of who, or one of the characteristics is to protest um, outwardly. You know. um, and in that way, I mean, sure, it's not militant in the way that we normally think about it, but it certainly is. Resistant, yes, you know, definitely. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, I just wanted to, to elaborate a little bit, which is to say that one of the key key things that I see in the New Negro era is that there are a lot of different ways to do that. Yes. Um, and whereas others have have seen this as primarily a middle class movement or primarily primarily a literary movement. I don't see it so much as a movement, as a generational sort of ethos, right? Mm-hmm. That encompassed mm-hmm. African Americans across class lines and across gender lines. Um, they're all assorted in themselves in various ways. And they didn't agree necessarily about the ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, some of them were more militant than others. Some of them were more interested in labor issues and economic issues. Some of them um, were more radical. Some of them Conservative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of different ways to do that, but it's sort of a, a sort of a generational modernist mm-hmm. sort of sensibility. Yeah, I was uh, I was kind of surprised at the explicitly degrading ways in which some new Negro progressives, um, and, and one of the ways that I saw it, just to sit as an aside. There's a distinction that I think that you make in your text between new Negroes and new Negro progressives. Um, who, 
exist as a, as a sort of a subset. That's one of the right. Ways. Right. Exactly. Um, another way that uh, another term that they reminded me of were race men. Right? Yeah. Race men or race women. Yeah, that's one of the ways that I was able to make the distinction between. Um, or, or think about the diversity of ideas that existed amongst the um, individuals who were defined as new Negroes, right? Yeah. But I was I was really surprised at the explicit um, way in which new Negro progressives really spoke, um, you know, of the quote unquote lower grades yes. of African Americans. Uh, were you surprised as well in your research? Um, I, I'm not sure surprised would be the, uh, the term. I mean, others have, have researched and talked about the ways in which um, those who saw themselves as race leaders and, and um, thought of themselves as responsible for the rest of the masses, right, um, really felt that, that African Americans, the majority of them, and especially these new migrants to the cities, weren't ready. Um, um, the tools and the facility that they would need um, to not only um, progress themselves, but make the race look good, right, in public space and in these other areas. Um, so there's certainly a class bias, and I think the rising class bias as the race is developing distinct classes um, in the generations before, you have very few African Americans who in terms of what they actually earn, could really call themselves middle class. Mm-hmm. But you certainly have people who aspire. Right. But in the modern era, as the 20th century progresses, you have more and more um, actual economic terms and relations to the larger market and classes. So the class that already existed has more and more foundation for expression. Right. I was, I was also struck by um, how out of touch some of the, the new Negro uh, progressive women, we're talking about the women here who was writing of, you know, mostly, um, you know, other newly migrant, new, the new migrants coming from the South, um, how, how out of touch they were with, with um, the individuals that they were claiming to speak for, you know, one of the parts in your text uh, where you talk about this is, I can't remember who it was, but she was writing about the individuals wanting to instill in them a desire for um, for them to be consistent and develop a good work ethic. And oh, this was, um, can you say a little bit more about that? The, um, the Nachman um, company, I forget what the, what the full name of the company is, but uh, yeah, a social worker. Um, I believe that it's Eva Bowles, um, maybe another of the social workers that I study. Um, but, you know, um, her job is to um, look at uh, this group of black women who were newly employed in this um, semi industrial um, company or state. Um, and she's upset and feels that it's her mission to, to help them improve because they're not coming to work on time or staying for the full day um, and they are not um, um, sort of working at the pace that the company would like. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, you know, she's writing up her report in the pages of opportunity saying what she has done to try to um, help ameliorate this situation. Um, but then when you look more closely, you find that the company is not actually paying by the hour, right? according to how many cushions they have completed in the course of the day. Um, so why should they come to work, um, you know, right on time at, at 8 or 9 or whatever the company wants right. to stay all day? Well, why should they do the piecework according to how much money they make and say, well, you know, I need $5 and make five cushions or whatever was. Yes, yes, yes. But she's not, she's not seeing it from the perspective of a labor organizer, right? Mm-hmm. Perspective of the workers, but from the perspective of the company and in a larger sense, um, from this sort of Negro progressive intent of making the race look good um, to potential workers, right? And so she does admit, okay, they need to be paid better, right? right. But she doesn't, but she's really emphasizing the idea that they need to be better workers and more industrious and more Right. Rather than um, the notion that, you know, they're essentially being exploited. Right. 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 Uh, in that sort of regular way of capitalist exploitation. Mm-hmm. As women, um, who are paid less than the capitalist. Yeah, I. Um it seems to me that that um, lack of awareness, that that gap um, between an understanding of the work perspective, again, can be applied to today. I mean, I think that that's something that we hear um, individuals talking about and certainly can see in the the discussions or um, the um, stalemates that are in Congress or whatever other levels of government, there just seems to be a lack of awareness. Um, okay, so that didn't surprise you. Is there something that did surprise you um, that you came across in your, your research? Well, um, I think what, what intrigued me most and what I go back to when I pick up the book um, is the, the last chapter, the ways in which um, black women are endeavoring um, to push back against these disputes at um, uh, two-dimensional sort of, or one-dimensional, I might say, um, ways of, of understanding them, right? And I, you know, I had been aware of um, black women's fiction from the period before I started this research, but I was able to see it in a new light um, alongside some of the essays um, and the oral histories. Um, and I really like, uh, I think Alice Dunnigan um, stands out the most. Yeah, yeah. She was really, I really enjoyed reading about her. And reading the primary uh, quotes that you use within the Texas Post, like letting her speak yes. and giving her voice was powerful. Yeah, I mean, she's um, she was interviewed. This oral history that I use was uh, taken in the 1970s. Um, and so you can tell that the interviewer is trying to um, get her to say that she's a feminist, right? Or that she subscribes oh. to women's liberation is defined um, by the mainstream in the 1970s. And she's like, no. no. <laughs> it's not what she's interested in. She's interested in um, 
be respected as a woman. Um, and she does want to be taken seriously in terms of, of her work um, and in terms of um, her ability to determine her own destiny mm-hmm. and her own relationship to her husband, her community. Um, but she also wants to be um, sort of supported um, and uh, helped along in sort of a chivalrous way, right? Mm-hmm. Supported across the street. Mm-hmm. Cigarette lit for her. Mm-hmm. Her voice is very strong. Um, she's very, very critical of the first husband. Did not meet any of those standards in terms of being supportive or of being respectful of her, um, of her intention to determine her, her own um, role in the world. Yes, I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and uh, you're listening to. Uh, New Books in African American Studies through the New Books Network. And today we're speaking with Dr. Erin D. Chapman about her text, Prove It On Me, New Negroes, Sex, and Popular Culture in the 1920s. All right, and Annie Dunnigan, really, um, her story really um, was a nice culminating point for me that kind of clarified um, one one story that clarified for me that uh, black women during the New Negro era really were between a rock and a hard place. Um, I I guess I noted that there were uh, so many incongruities that you noted within your within the meet within the the movement right for racial advancement. And I'm speaking here, for example, of um, New Negro men using early black feminist anti-lynching, you know, ideology to reinforce patriarchal ideas mm. for racial advancement. Can you talk a little bit about such, you know, oddities or contradictions? Um, yes, I mean, I, I assume you're speaking of Oscar Micheaux, um, mm-hmm. a filmmaker, um, who um, I, I analyzed his second film within our debates um, at some length in chapter one. Um, and I, I don't I guess I don't see that so much as a contradiction as a transition um, that is aware of and drawing upon um, the anti-lynching um, ideology that's there that was principally laid out by Ida B. Wells right. uh, and taken up by the National Association of Colored Women. Um, and, you know, he's drawing upon that and, and pointing out um, what they pointed out. He's using film to sort of show us that lynching is often accompanied by rape, that these are forms of terror uh, uh, practiced against African Americans, not because of uh, uh, black men being accused of raping white women. Um, the idea that black men um, are rapists, um, but more importantly because um, uh, in reaction to any sign of African-American economic competition or political self-assertion. And so he utilizes that and shows, juxtaposes the lynching of um, Jasper Landry and Mrs. Landry um, against the um, attempted rape of their daughter, uh, Sylvia. Um, but he does that in a flashback sequence. The lynching takes place in a flashback in the larger film that really is much more about um, the, um, the cure for all of this, right? Which is the, the um, coming to prominence of 
the new Negro, right? Um, this new personality um, who is Dr. Vivian, um, the character in the film, um, who is highly educated, who is committed to African-American racial advancement, who um, has the wherewithal, um, because of his education, because of his um, lack of vulnerability, has the wherewithal to um, not be a victim and not allow um, those connected to him to be victimized. Um, and Sylvia, um, our ostensible protagonist, ends up married to Dr. Vivian. And at the end of the film, after he has heard this story of, of her secret shame, which is this I have turned out to be your father, actually. Right? And so this race melodrama. Right? Um, <laughs> you know, um, secrets revealed and all of that kind of thing. Um, and so he's heard this story, and his answer to her is to be proud of, her, of our country, um, that she um, can contribute as his tender wife, and that she has been, um, she's going to be a good patriot, and that she has been um, uh, thinking, um, her thinking has been warped. Right. Yeah, that was the language, right. Uh, <laughs> right. And and uh, so he, here he is. He's the right thinker. Um, he has, uh, he and other African-American men have defended the country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this weird sort of patriotic proposal, right? And you will always be a patriot and a tender wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, right. List these battles from World War One and from the Spanish-American War. Um, in which black men participated. Um, and so, you know, I'm trying to make sense of this, and it seems to me that what is happening is that he is declaring, um, and Michelle Freeman is declaring the rise of this new Negro patriarch who can protect the country, who can protect the race, who can protect the Sylvias of the race, right? Mm-hmm. And lead the way forward. Um, so she accepts that her thinking has been warped. Um, she holds his hand, they together look out into this brighter day, mm-hmm. through this sort of lighted window in the final scene. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, so, yes, uh, Michelle recognizes that, um, that this, this lynching politics has occurred according to this rape lynch discourse, right? Yeah. Um, that has been prominent in the past. Um, he accepts Ida B. Wells. Um, and the National Association of Colored Women's Interpretation of Lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, but his remedy, right, is the rocks of the Negro patriarch. Right, right. And that's... So it's that, a transitional moment. Yes, that, that's right. Yeah, it is, certainly is a transitional moment. And um, that's the, the tension that I'm talking about, um, that, you, you know, the, the, um, his compliance with what she says you know, what Ida B. Wells outlines, um, but that in the end, the twist to this is why we ought to support patriarchal um, ideologies for racial advancement, that's where the tension is. For me, that's where that contradiction comes in. And maybe irony, I don't know, but it's just funny to me that we're utilizing this woman who went out. She was, she was a wife, yes, but she was also working a race woman. Yes, um, but the solution that ultimately comes at the end is stay home, be a good wife, be a good race mother, and we'll take care of the business. Just support us. 
You know, that's the irony or tension that I'm talking about. Um, and it's, you know, repletes, I think, throughout, as we continue to look at your analysis of the, you know, sex race marketplace and, and how women were able to uh, create a space for themselves in between these tensions. I guess another, another good example um, that you highlight is the desire for black bodies as commodities, how that, that desire um, opens up spaces for blacks to be viewed as human beings, but simultaneously allows for the dehumanization of black bodies. Yes, right. Um, so one of the things that I think results from this great migration and this new conspicuousness of African Americans is that um, people want to see actual black bodies, you know, mm-hmm. whereas before, you know, it was all about the minstrel show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically it was black performers dressing up in blackface, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and tap dancing or, you know, doing these sort of uh, vaudeville uh, sort of skits and this kind of um, performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these weren't actual, I mean, they were actual black people, but they had to disguise themselves to fit this this stage sort of plantation stereotype, particularly mm-hmm. nostalgia. Whereas in the modern era, um, viewers want to see actual black bodies. And so, yes, they're there, they're in photographs, um, sort of splashed across um, uh, the uh, periodicals, they're in performances on stage and screen, um, and they're, they're sometimes comedic, but sometimes extremely sexy. Um, and that's new, right? Because Mammy, you know, the, <laughs> is not sexy, right? It's definitely not sexy. Right, that's, that's the whole thing about Mammy, is that she doesn't have a sexuality except as a mother to these um, white children or white women who are her charges, right? Um, so, yes, they get to be visible, they get to be sexy, they get to be divas, they're seen on, on race records, they're the focus of these advertisements, and yet um, they immediately fall into this next um, sort of one-dimensional space where they're hypersexualized, right? Um, through this primitivism that's at work um, in this period. Um, and you can see that in the ways that the recording companies chose to advertise them. Um, and, you know, so they're, they're highly, highly sexualized or hypersexualized. They're also um, the, the um, companies, these white-owned companies, are also utilizing the very language of self-determination. That's right, yeah. That was, I found that to be really... Fascinating. We're talking about Columbia and then the other, you know, um, white-owned companies. And also, um, um, Peluco hairdressing and Golden Brown. That's right, Golden Brown Beauty Preparations. Is, has created this whole character that's fictional as far as researchers. Madam Mamie Hightower, right? Um, who's supposed to be this entrepreneurial... Um, um, success story um, to rival Madison J. Walker. Yeah, yeah. But who, who didn't exist? She did exist, and she may have been uh, the wife of this man named Zach Hightower, um, of the drug company that owned the Golden Brown Company. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, this entrepreneur who's created this uh, line of products and who is selling them, right, in the tradition of Adam C.J. Walker. Right. For our race and our woman. And I just thought it was so fascinating the way that, and uh, just to raise this, okay, I thought it was fascinating the way in which these white-owned companies were utilizing um, the rhetoric of the new Negro progressivism. Um for their own, you know, for cap- their own capitalistic ventures. Absolutely. Uh, and it speaks to some things that you raise in terms of um, ownership and control. I want to talk about that shortly. Um, but just looking at the ads in your text, you do a really good job of, of um, inserting these primary documents, these ads, advertisements themselves, and we can see the way in which these caricatures or um, cartoons are very much a part of the ad, but then you have a little inset of the real, you know, Bessie Smith or Clara Smith, um, but everything else is a cartoon. Right. And a, and a cartoon that is, that is really um, decoratory. I mean... Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, Sambo-like, right? In that tradition, right, right, um, and you know they're they're rubes, I call them, right. I mean they're they're country, mm-hmm, <laughs> they're mm-hmm. modern and sophisticated. Um, they are in mismatched outfits and they have their hair all over their head, you know, and, which is a phrase that my mother and grandmother use, right. <laughs> You know, they're not coiffed and dressed and right. fashionable in the way that um, the blues women were, right, when they performed, um, or in those little headshots, you know, if you could see them, and you could see that they were, you know, um, larger than life, and they're sort of extreme um, diva uh, glamour, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the primary image that you get. The primary image that you get um, is of these... Um, sort of um, backwards country folk, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, I mean, you know, it's not as if um, African-American buyers or consumers, um, especially those who were recent migrants, may not have laughed along with the comedic attempts. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. They might have seen something of themselves or their cousins or, you know, that's mm-hmm. why when I first got to the city, I'm so glad I'm, you know, dressed right now, or, you know. Right. Um, but they function overall in this way to, right, to shrink the significance of this this uh, effort at self determination that these blue women right. It shrinks the significance um, and highlights this whole world of black deviance, right, unsuitability for modern life. Um, and so, you know, black people, you know, are, have these weird relationships where the woman has a cleaver and she's chasing her boyfriend down the street. <laughs> He's running from her. She's so much bigger than him. He's smaller than her. Right. Cowering and sweating. And, right. You know, right. So these backwards relationships, um, these, you know, um, these deviant people with their country talk and you see the, the script in some of those ads, you know, they're very much using some some sort of white idea of what black slang might or might not be. Right. And maybe they get it right, maybe they don't. In some instances they do, in some instances they don't, whatever. Um, But the point is that they are imposing these notions um, Mm -hmm. 
Americans um, and representing that, them that way in periodicals and in these public spaces. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder, in reading it, I, a question that I had was, I wonder how um, aware individuals were of the distinction between the white, with, with this kind of strategy, right, um, in terms of using the rhetoric of racial advancement, how aware the, the masses were, the public was, of which ones were white-owned companies versus which ones were, were not. Right. Um, I'm not sure, but I know that in doing my research with the um, Madam C.J. Walker Company, um, their archives are in Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, and I came across um, some bits of things that I wasn't able to amass enough to, to, to put into the book itself, but mm-hmm. bits of things that suggested that the Walker Company, at least, um, it was, was making a real effort to combine with other actually black-owned companies. Mm-hmm to try to have the public understand which ones were the real new Negroes sort of entrepreneurial efforts and which ones were not. Yes. It's not clear at all how far they got from that or the success that they had with sending that message out. But they wanted, they were trying to do that and they were also trying to to make their um, consumers aware of what their actual packaging looked like because Mm -hmm. Um, they, they knew that they were being copied. Um, yeah. I mean, it's so evident. It's so obvious the ways in which um, they were appropriating, uh, you know, particularly golden brown. Mm-hmm. It's just appropriating uh, Matt and C.J. Walker's uh, strategies for yeah. selling her products. Um, and so I'm not surprised at all that she she is a businesswoman. I mean, it's not odd to me that she understands what's going on and would try to create some kind of strategy by which uh, um, she can let the the public know um, what's going on. Um, I mean, she died in 1990, um, but it's certainly um, the company's policy. They they are using her story of Greg's British success Mm -hmm. and using um, her strategies well into the 1920s and the early 30s. Well, one thing we can definitely see if we look at Oscar Michaud, if we're looking at the Birth of Nation, uh, if we're looking at these ads, is the power of the image. The power of image to, um, in terms of self-determination, but also to uh, put out an idea that's how, I mean, how effective it is, uh, how effective some um, people's efforts were can be questioned, but the, the power of the image um, or visual text cannot be, you know, disputed, uh, right, within, within uh, at this time, and obviously today, it's uh, a no-brainer. One of the things that I wanted to, uh, that struck me was some text by Golden Brown. I want to read it here and ask your thoughts on this. Um, you say here on page 101, um, when, as you're quoting a Golden Brown ad, that pride in our race demands that we look light, bright, and attractive. End quote. And I thought, goodness, you know, we know that within our folk- folklore there's this language of, you know, um, light is right, 
like right is right. And I'm wondering, I, I just started thinking, I wonder where that language came from. It, did it come from, um, you know, this white-owned company that put that out there? Or is it something that they're clinging to and then appropriating? Well, I think that they are appropriating and utilizing what they know to already be there. Um, I certainly don't think that, that colorism, right, um, as well, you know, defines that term, um, was uh, was invented, right? Um, certainly there before, well before. Um, but um, I think that they, there's, there's something about modifying colorism, right? And um, I wonder if it seems to me that the part of this is the idea that that to be lighter is somehow to be more modern. <laughs> yeah, we talked about Mammy before, and of course, Mammy's always very dark skinned, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so is Uncle Tom, right? And Aunt Jemima, and you know, the Aunt Jemima adds a huge in this period, um, right? And so, Mammy, uh, in some ways, is overshadowing everything. <laughs> and um, so, I wonder if part of, of his emphasis on light skin um, is is also um, this idea of, of what it means to be modern, as well as what it means to be supposedly more attractive, more. Yes, yes. Or, you know. There's also a piece of, of that, um, like, the dancers who danced at the Cotton Club um, the, uh, as the jazz performances were going on, right? The segregated, this is one of the segregated venues um, in Thailand where white people get to be in, in the audience watching black performers. Right. Um, and, you know, those dancers have to be a certain color. <laughs> um, so, what is it that white people are watching when they're watching white skinned? Black women, um, legs. Right? It seems to me that part of what they're watching is is uh, some notion, some some uh, sort of what may have been sexy or titillating idea of the results of miscegenation, mm -hmm. the results of elimination, right? Yes, yes, sure. Um, you know, so one way that black women dealt with the, the um, these the, incongru the incongruities, right, the tensions between the power of the image and then the other side of what it could do, which is, you know, causing the dehumanization of their black bodies. Um, one of the ways that black women dealt with it was through what you call a culture of dissemblance. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the culture of dissemblance? Yeah. Right, I mean, I'm, I'm utilizing uh, Darling Meister. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm positing that um, companies like the Madam C.J. Walker Company um, or uh, black women and black people at large who wanted to, were, were mindful of this hypersexualization and didn't want to contribute to it. Um, attempted to dissemble their sexuality, particularly in terms of what they were going to represent in terms of advertisements and images in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So I don't find um, the Madame C.J. Walker company using large photographs or right, representing actual black people. Um, 
they show um, either drawings of the, the their products in their packages, right? Again, to have their public understand what that package looks like, right? Buy it in the marketplace. Also, um, um, images of sort of of angels delivering the packages. You know, just like um, they're on a missionary. That's right. Hey, that really struck me. Um, is that rhetoric that is clear in Madam C.J. Walker's <laughs> ads of her doing God's work, essentially, um, and encouraging agents to think of themselves as missionaries going to convert <laughs> the masses? Um, yes. Um, I mean, I think there's something, I mean, quite simply, it, there's, there's a rhetoric already there. Right, like how do you approach people that you don't know to get them to do something? Right, there's a method to that that black people might have uh, that might have been familiar to black people already that comes out of the church, right? Mm-hmm. Right, or proselytizing. Right? Um, there's also, I think, um, a real resistance um, to this idea of, of um, making it clear that they're giving black women, in particular a means of making themselves sexier or more proactive, more independent in terms of their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Like, no, 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 that's not what we do. Right? Right, <laughs> no, right. To be upset about that, you know, that kind of notion. No, we're improving the health of the race as a whole. That's right. Look better, look more respectable, healthier, have healthier skin and scalps. Mm-hmm. And can advance the race in this way. Mm-hmm. Oh, you really got that, that rhetoric down good, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, you know, it's a to um, That's one of the, the points that I, I come back to a lot of Wow, they're really, I see it as really savvy. You know, I won't say manipulative because that word it has a negative connotation. Right. Um, perhaps it shouldn't because it's just what you do as a savvy business person. Right. Right. And then and paying attention to behaviors, habits. And I mean, these, what was so fascinating to me, again, is that tension or that maybe the irony of that the use of the culture of descendants. But these, I mean, C.J. Walker is a businesswoman, very successful businesswoman. So it's con- who she is in reality is very much a different persona than what is being put out um, in the ads. Um, similarly, you talked a little bit about this um, with Evelyn Prayers. Is how do you say her last name? Oh, Prayer, right? In Oscar Micheaux's um, "Within Our Gates," when she's giving her um, interviews, she's there. She has a persona, yes. right? Very much. So. Yeah, the, very flapper, very sexy, cute, mm-hmm. um, flirtatious, mm-hmm. and and distinct from who she is. And she's very good at keeping the public at bay in terms yeah. of who she was in her private life versus what was on uh, her public persona. Right. And, and both of those are very distinct from Sylvia Landry. Right. Exactly. You know, she's the sort of um, sexy flapper, not not too, um, yeah, not hypersexual, right? But, but also um, not sort of staid and conservative and, and victimized. Right. 
Right, like, like Sylvia Landry. Um, so, but would you say that the culture of dissemblance is something that um, new Negro women had to had to engage in, um, given the you know stringent didactic spaces um, in which they were allowed to be? Um, I think that it's one method. It's it's a method that is inherited from their mother's generation, and uh, I, I see them pushing back against it in a number of ways. Right. So, Madame C.J. Walker and the Walker Company are utilizing it, but as I say in, in that chapter three, um, there are women who are doing something entirely different, right? So, by the end of that chapter, you get to Nora Holt, who's naked, right? <laughs> right. Naked. Um, Just completely. That's true. I mean, and offering herself, right? Um, and would dance naked at parties and. Um, you know, just had a really good time with, with playing with her sexuality, um, right? And married five times, and was just really not interested in any of that. It's cultural things, right? Right, right. Um, I cracked up at your um, when you noted the difference between Jesse Fawcett and Nella, Nella Larson, oh, and, and your use of your, their relationship or their. Uh, Perception of moral hopes to kind of highlight their own personalities. Right, right. So that, you know, Jesse Fawcett, um, so Nora Holtz uh, gets naked and dances at a party that is an after hours party for Paul Robeson um, and his singing partner after a concert that they have given. Um, and, you know, Nora Holt is, I sort of picture her in my mind. There's nothing suggesting that she was actually up on a table, but that's how I picture her. <laughs> she certainly danced nude. Um, and and uh, Carl Van Becton, who's also there, reports that Jesse Fawcett almost expired. Right? <laughs> so shocked and horrified that Nora Holt would do this. Right? right. And Ella Larson makes friends with Nora Holt. Right. Right. Oh, yeah, that was great. Pretty interesting. <laughs> Very funny. Very good. Um, um, so that, that also, I, I would like to say that that also highlights um, something else that's happening because Jessie Fawcett, you know, she acts like sort of a, a snob and a prude in that particular situation, or at least that's what Carl Van Becken reports. Right. And yet in her novel, Plum Bun, she's certainly not a prude, right? Not in what she has her main character engaged in. So, um, you know, she doesn't go as far as Mel Larson in her critique of patriarchy or of marriage, um, but she certainly um, is not having Angela ignore or dissemble her sexuality. Right. Right. Um, so there's definitely a connection between ownership and control, some kind of relationship that you draw between ownership and control of one's images. And Nora Holt, um, you know, one of the things that you say later in the book is that you know, the ex- if we look at the, the um, exploitation of um, the far-reaching sex race marketplace, um, as a quote from your book, um, if we look at that, uh, then we say that, you know, new Negro women did not completely control the sociocultural effects or the uses made of um, their sexuality or images of their sexuality. Um, but then when you, you talk about Nora Holt, um, 
a quote that you talk I'm going to quote you here. You say, Holt surely enjoyed her manipulation of the marketplace's ingrained hypersexual sexualization of black women. Fearlessly, she took that representation in her hands, molded and maximized it to augment her reputation as a vamp, her fun, and her income. So, I guess, end quote. Would you would you say then that she is in control of um, which her image, or she owns it? Certainly, maybe that she controls it. But would you say that she owns it? Um, I would say that she owns it to the extent that we all own our images, mm-hmm. but that there's always a tension, right? And and, and an increased tension for Black women because of the difference that race and sex and um, sexual oppression make, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that she can she takes what's already there, right? So already black women also look to say it's like coded, right? In such a people are already seeing them through right? They, they can't control that, right? She can't control that. But so instead of fighting it and assembling or or doing it in this proper way or you know, trying to, to wind her way through it, she's just like, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Sexy, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. You know, let's go. Right. Um, and so, and that's what she's selling in part. I mean, she's not a prostitute, and she's not a blues woman strictly, but she is somebody who um, you know, performed at parties. She's a musician. She's a singer. Right. She also has lots of friends, and um, you know, is known sort of. You know, she's one of those people that you invite to the party because you know that she's going to sing. Right. Way that's fun. Uh, huh. I'm wondering if, you know, one of the things that you noticed that she was not lacking for money, she was left a, um, a nice um, inheritance from her, her, her husband, her first, I think it was her first husband, and yet still she worked and had fun and things like that. And I wonder if her, her um, financial freedom afforded her the ability to be free in her um, embracing or utilizing or exploiting the sexual images, sexualized images of black women out there for her own benefit? What do you think? It may be that she that she felt freer because she didn't, um, you know, she wasn't going to be impoverished. Right. I don't think that her inheritance from that first husband was enough so that she could live really high. Oh, okay. To... Um, uh, without making some other money. I think mean, that she, she definitely wasn't going to be impoverished, but at the same time, she wants to, you know, she travels the world. She performs in Tokyo. She's off to Paris. She's living high life in New York. Mm-hmm. So um, she had to work some in order to, or be attached to some new guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and she does all of that, it seems to me. Um, and, you know, I don't think she is bothered much by these questions of respectability or representation mm-hmm. that are so important to, to some of her contemporaries and that can be so important to a lot of black people's coming. Right. Well, Nora Holt was most definitely um, guilty of the sin of individuality, as you note in, as a quote from your book. Uh, the sin of individuality, which I really, uh, I really liked. 
uh, even though there were women who were compliant with masculinism, um, you know later in the book, your entire last chapter really focuses on the dissatisfaction um, that we find in you know, Marita Bonner's essays and Jesse Fawcett and Nella Larson's um, art. Do you want to talk a little bit about their expressions of, of unhappiness? Yes, I, I think that um, they all recognize to one degree or another um, that they're not um, they're, they're not being known, they're not understood by, by their society at large. Um, and that to some extent um, the prevalent African-American racial advancement effort of the era with its focus on men man is not helping them be better. Right. Um, so there are degrees, right? I don't, I don't, I don't posit or understand there to be an overarching sort of Negro feminist movement. Right, 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 yeah. Um, there are individual feminists. Right. And I think Noel Larson is certainly one of them, sure. Um, I I could say that from a certain perspective that at least Johnson Google was one of them. Right. Permitted as she was. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they see, they're not gathering together in, in a feminist movement, but they are um, mounting sort of quiet protests. Right. And quiet efforts to say, no, we're more complicated than this. Right. right. Um, or I question this. Well, what about this? Like, if Marita Bonner seems to be the single. Really, do I have to go <laughs> down south and teach or do something to my people? I recognize that that's what I should do, that's what expected of me. Can I really want to do that? I don't know. Right. Um, and so there were different responses to that question, but I think that it's the determination to ask the question that is really I And that's what I'm trying to draw out is, is questions um, and the different responses to those questions. Yeah. So one of the oral histories is of a woman named uh, Melita Cass, um, yeah. who seemed, um, from her interview and her, relate, uh, uh, her story of her life, perfectly happy to be um, at home, taking care of the children. Um, her husband um, was one of the film importers. Um, she was involved in volunteer networks. Um, but she did not work outside the home, mm-hmm. and she did not um, object in any way um, to her husband's request or perhaps demand um, that she stay home and take care of the children and make that her primary effort. Mm-hmm. She was happy with that. Um, it's fine. Um, and so it's not that there weren't women who were happy with that, and that that's not part of the Negro era as well, because it certainly is. Um, but it's the question, right? It's the education of women saying, well, I could work, or, well, um, I don't know if patriarchy is what I want my marriage to look like, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, all right, so the, the one of the, the last questions I want to ask you here kind of... Uh, gives you an opportunity to talk about the art, um, the art form that just kind of going along with this question of dissatisfaction. What is it about the fine arts that allows people like, you know, um, Jesse Fawcett or Noah Larson to 
or the blues, any of the blues women, right, to explore a more complex image of, of black women. Over, overwhelmingly, we find that it is in the fine arts that these women are presenting themselves as more complex, not necessarily themselves, but their characters or their personas, right? What is it about the fine arts that allows that space? I think that, that in any era um, in, in the Western world, we consider the arts to be a space of exploration. Um, so that's sort of the foundation there, right? Um, to a novelist or a poet, right, who's dreaming a world, right? um, and, and sort of holding up a mirror in a certain way, um, and saying, well, what about this, you know, in contradiction to the world that we know? Um, and likewise with uh, plays or performance, and that's why we're drawn I think, to music or to um, the arts in general. Um, so I think that that's a, a basis there, but that, that's always the case with the arts. Um, I think that, that this recognition, right, um, that uh, Negro women have um, that opportunity allows them to say, okay, well, in my real life, I've got to conform to a certain degree, right? Or else um, perhaps be ostracized or not considered to be part of the group, and that's a little scary. Mm-hmm. But here, um, in this fictional space, where we say, um, I'm going to, or, you know, as I write this music, right, I get to express myself um, in a way that's not. Um, it's not necessarily available to me in public space. And I'm going to have continue to have the relationships that I've been accustomed to and that are valuable to me. So, makes sense. Does that answer yeah, your question? That, that definitely makes sense uh, for sure. I just wanted to, and I, it, I think it'll make sense to a lot of our listeners. I guess one of the things that, excuse me, I'm thinking is just that we need to, um, what I'm hoping that people take away is that we need to continue to emphasize the fine arts as a space of exploration and freedom, a, a space wherein one, you know, if you don't necessarily have a room of your own in literally, at least you can within the space of the fine art that, that, that existed then and it still exists now as a place where one can um, explore possibilities, right, through fictional, through personas. Um, so you've been listening to Dr. Erin D. Chapman discuss her book, Prove It On Me, New Negroes, Sex, and Popular Culture in the 1920s, here on New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson. And before we close, Erin, I'd love to hear um, what you're working on now. Well, um, I am fascinated by Lorraine Hansberry. Um, <laughs> I came to her um, uh, as part of um, preliminary research um, I'm doing on um, a possible next book project, A Long History of Black Feminism, from mm-hmm. right, the 1990s. I um, hope to look at uh, black feminist expression and its history um, as, a, as a facet of the racial advancement Large. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm going to write that whole book, but right now I'm really fascinated by Lorraine Hansberry um, and her 
she seems to me to be attempting to cobble together um, a, a means of addressing both racism and sexism simultaneously. And I think her art, one of the things that fascinates me is that when she is interviewed about raising the son and her other plays, um, she emphasizes the women characters. Um, and she seems to me to be positing them as the primary sort of leaders um, and shakers um, and themes as she sees her mom. Which, of course, is, is not the way that it's usually understood. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. And so um, I'm fascinated by that. So I wouldn't look more closely um, at her papers and her journals and. You know, she seemed to just sit down at the typewriter sometimes and type up her thoughts almost like a journal. Um, and just read their thoughts. And so there's lots there to sort of dig through and get to know her. Well, good luck with that. I mean, we definitely look forward to seeing what you come up with next. And if it's anything like Who It On Me, um, we know that it's going to be excellent and critical and, and interesting as well. Um, so thank you so much for speaking with us today. Wish you all the very best. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I'm Sherry Johnson host of the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, and you've been listening to my conversation with Dr. Erin D. Chapman, where we discuss her new book, Prove It On Me, New Negroes, Sex and Popular Culture in the 1920s. I hope you'll join me next time.